0: with it on a computer Who is this doing, this type? doing it with it on a computer Who is this doing, this type? doing it with it on a computer Who is this doing, this type? doing it with it on a computer
1: hello and welcome to romaniacs the 3d brexit podcast that's been doing it with it on a computer since 2017 that was our small homage to electrobank by friends of the show the chemical brothers featuring Esther McVeigh. I'm Dorian Linsky, and helping me to get Romaniacs done this week, we've got <laughs> Ros Taylor, editor of LSE Brexit Blogs. Hi, Ros. how are you?
2: I'm pretty well, uh, despite everything.
1: <laughs> what was uh, what was your highlight of the smorgasbord of highlights that is the Conservative conference?
2: Um... <sighs> it's hard to talk about highlights isn't it but i mean it, it i think johnson's speech really just by virtue of its complete drivel uh, 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 and that has to what was he on about when the chlorinated chickens waddle from the hen coop where they are hiding that is the vision of the country we will put to the people <laughs> i i don't have any idea even what this means it's just nobody it's does got
1: cut out of have i got news for you it's just like he's putting in like a topical reference but he mm. doesn't know what to do with it
2: yeah he was on about <laughs> exporting jason donovan cds to north korea as well it was just as an example of british trade power and i was just what yeah it was extraordinary
1: uh ian Dunt is editor of politics.co hello ian how are you hello yes pretty good pretty good uh well for me the high stroke low light um was Pretty patel's smug grin as she promised to end freedom of movement and only encourage immigration for the best and brightest as if britain wasn't a country <laughs> but a kind of russell group university
0: <laughs> <laughs> um what uh, what struck you to be honest, I've been trying to look at as little of it as humanly possible, really. So I've avoided almost everything that was going on. I've barely seen any ministerial speeches. I'm not there. I have the excuse that Parliament is here, but frankly, I was going to try and avoid that shit anyway. <laughs> like, it's an absolute horror show. So I've, I've pretty much tuned into almost none of it until Boris's speech today.
1: So your reason for letting not just us here in the room, but all the listeners down, is that you've been working on a new book, which uh-huh, you've just yes. announced, uh, called How to Be a Liberal, which... Uh, What's it about? And when's
0: it coming out? Uh, it's, it's, it's about how to be a liberal. Um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> but specifically. It feels, it feels <laughs> quite weird even saying it out loud, because I've been working on this for like uh, about a year and a half now, um, and sort of keeping it stum apart from to you guys who I bore about it all the fucking time, whenever the mics are off. So it's about, you know, history of liberalism from sort of the very beginnings. We're coming Descartes, you know, Locke, from John Stuart Mill and his rather extraordinary wife, Harriet Taylor, sort of through totalitarianism to the financial crash and on. And like the idea behind it is basically that if you talk to most socialists, they will have a pretty good idea of at least what Marx is and what Trotsky is, you know, even on that basic level, they'll have heard of Engels. But to me, most liberals, I don't find that that's really the case, when you might get John Stuart Mill sort of at most, really, in terms of knowledge. And part of the reason that we're getting our asses handed to us so bad is because we've kind of lost contact with our values and why we hold them and where they came from and the kind of sacrifices that were entailed in securing them. So the book's hopefully going to be an attempt to to sort of reverse that process.
2: I really like that we're having we're getting these kinds of books now, because previously they, these kinds of books about politics and how to relate to politics were pretty much an American phenomenon, weren't they? They, they were something that kind of how to be a liberal, that would be published in the US, but not here.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I really like that that Britain's embracing belatedly. That trend.
0: I also think it's important that we add to the growing library of books that start with the words "how to." Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Which now I'm ranked at about twenty of them, and like hopefully that'll be the end of that.
1: You'll kill it. You'll <laughs> kill a publishing trend <laughs> single handedly And when, when when will you be killing this publishing trend?
0: Uh, so next spring we have um. You can pre-order it now. Actually, you get like a special limited edition version with a gift, and it's signed by me and and blah blah. So you could do that um, on my publisher's website called Canbury Press. Um, But, yeah, it's another six months until it it comes out. I'm putting the final touches on the last two or three chapters as we speak.
1: Nice. Our special guest this week is Chris Southworth, Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce, an organisation that represents 45 million companies and 1 billion employees in over 100 countries. He's a regular on TV and radio. Currently, he's on the road ensuring the business community's pre-Brexit tension is not ignored. Hello, Chris. Welcome to Romaniacs.
3: Well, it's a very pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, we're very fond of the £100 million Get Ready for Brexit ad campaign because it's co-funding our podcast. <laughs> give the money to somebody that doesn't want to get ready for Brexit. But is it giving a business a useful message? It mostly, the impression that I got was it was just like, you should probably have a think about this. Does it, what, what's it backed up
4: with?
3: Um, I mean, it's nice to see something. Uh, it's all a little bit you know, too late, I think. Uh, too little, too late. But, you know, ultimately what, what companies are waiting for is certainty around what, what exactly they're planning for. Um, so the, the bigger companies, I think, are better planned. They've had more time. They've got more capability. Uh, where the big concern is is around the small companies um, who, you know, survey after survey says the same thing. It's 70% are totally unprepared. Uh, and not just here on the, on the other side of the channel too. But, you know, that, that's a huge concern because that means a lot of disruption potentially in supply chains. Uh, and ultimately, that means disruption at the top of the chain, too. Um, and, uh, you know, a campaign is is always good to get the word out, but you need some pretty nitty-gritty training and and, uh, and awareness raising around the technical... Trade is a very technical business at the end of the day. You know, it's about filling forms, the right forms, you know, stamping envelopes and all the rest of it, paying your taxes and what have you. So just a campaign on its own, not backed up by something more solid. I mean, the government uh, is you know, running workshops all, all, all over the country, uh, which again are welcome, but they're sort of two-hour workshops. And I'm not sure how much of trade you can cover in two hours. So it just doesn't feel quite enough, and it feels very late in the game
0: to be doing things like that. Was there anything they could have done for the information campaign, given they don't know what the final outcome was going to be? Or is it just, is it sort of, pointless as a point of principle to do it at this stage
3: well i think you know we're talking mostly i think here around goods exporters uh and like say small companies and we really ought to have had uh you know much more comprehensive training program around customs declarations you know if you've got to think too that if you're in a generation 50 or below which a lot of people are running companies and heads of departments and that kind of thing uh half of our trading companies only trade with europe um, you know um mid sized companies which is really the engine room of u k trade are two thirds more likely to be trading into europe you 've never had to deal with this stuff so it 's not simply about just you know learning to fill a form in you, you don 't know what the form is in the first place and so you 've got to kind of start from ground zero and you just can 't flick a switch and and turn that on um, and then you can 't suddenly outsource it either to freight forwarders and organizations who would normally do that paperwork because that industry also doesn 't have the capability to do it for everybody they 've got to scale up if that's what companies are going to do so there's a sort of big capacity gap
1: uh, and that's and that's a real concern how do companies prepare for because they they don't know what they're preparing for so presumably in order to prepare seriously for no deal would require a different set of actions than preparing Mm. for a deal Um, if no deal is blocked which legally it's meant to be at least for now does that just mean that there's a lot of money and effort going into something that could well be wasted or is there a way of kind of th- that some of these plans can sort of double in different scenarios? Well, if you, if
3: you talk to the bigger companies, they, they pretty much all say the same thing is plan for the worst, hope for the best, which sounds an incredible thing to say coming from a country like the UK uh, and a big, you know, trading global corporate. But that's that's the only thing you can do, really. Uh, and then anything upwards from there is 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 easier. Uh, But you can't work the other way around, Um, you know, sort of go halfway. And then if it is a no deal, then you're you're going to be in trouble. Mm. Um, You know, no deal. You've got to be really clear about that means hard borders. This idea that you can have a no deal and then not have a border that doesn't exist anywhere in the world. And and nor does a fully seamless border either. The closest you get to it is probably the EU-UK border. Uh, But there is no such thing as a fully digitized border. The technology doesn't even exist for it. You know, you have to have processes to manage, you know, uh, the incoming and outgoing of goods. Uh, However light touch you try and make that, you've still got to have the the Mm. systems and infrastructure to do it.
1: We'll be talking more about our trade position later, plus the worsening atmosphere around Brexit. Are we really likely to face civil unrest if Brexit doesn't happen? Or indeed, if it does? Or do certain people just want us to fear that? And in totally unrelated news, Dominic Cummings looms larger and larger. What's he want? What makes him tick? And how long do we have to put up with his intolerable bullshit? All that and more after these announcements from Roz.
2: It's a big day in the north. We're delighted to announce our very first Romaniacs live show in Manchester on Saturday the 2nd of November. It's at the Lowry, the stunning venue on Salford Quays, a mere stone's throw from Media City or Old Trafford. It's a matinee show at 2pm, and Ian, Dorian and I will be joined by a special guest to discuss exactly what's happening on the first weekend after supposed Brexit Day. Will we all be dead in a ditch, as promised? <laughs> will we be eating nettles? Or will the Prime Minister have amazed us all by obeying the Ben Act, or even getting a deal? <laughs> as well as our high-quality Brexit analysis and low-quality Brexit jokes, there will be exclusive special merchandise for the show our producers are calling Romani Manx. manks Yeah, remaining mags. And all guests are welcome from along the entire M62 corridor and beyond. Tickets are on sale now, just search Lowry Romaniacs. Of course, our Patreon backers get early bird access, tickets and a discount. If you want to get first dibs on live tickets, plus mugs and t-shirts and early access to the podcast, then why not support us on Patreon too? Search Romaniacs Patreon to find out more. That's Romaniacs Live at the Lowry, Manchester, at 2pm on Saturday the 2nd of November and Patreon Romaniacs to support the show.
1: Thanks, Roz. Now, it's a critical 48 hours for a Brexit deal, according to the FT. Boris Johnson is sending his formal proposal over to Brussels. According to official Johnson fan account, The Daily Telegraph, there will be two borders for four years in Ireland, with both a regulatory border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, and customs checks between the north and south of the island of Ireland. We've all been worrying about one border without considering the galaxy brain option of two borders. <laughs> um, Ian, what... Is the uh, logic behind this policy and how is it likely to go down?
0: Um, so at you? the moment, what we've seen is the leak from Peter Foster at The Telegraph, who's, um, I mean, The you know, Telegraph's coverage is obviously terrible. Peter Foster is completely brilliant. He's been one of the sort mm. of heroes, but he's just fantastic on this stuff. Um And what we have heard so far from Johnson would suggest that it's all going to be backed up by what we were going to see this afternoon and it's presented to Brussels. But there's no, we haven't actually seen that final text yet. So that's what we've got. The way it looks is it works like this. So you separate customs from uh, regulatory checks. So customs are obviously the checks you do for tariffs. Regulatory checks are to make sure that the person sending you the stuff is abiding by the kind of rules that you have on your territory, say on like chemicals and children's toys or something like that. Um, So take the first one first is customs. Northern Ireland, under this plan, would leave the customs union with the rest of the UK. And that would happen in 2021, at the end of the first extension uh, transition window. Under May's deal, there was an option for a second transition. It doesn't seem like Boris Johnson has any interest in using that. The first thing that would then happen is that there are checks, because you're in a new customs territory. His only response to this is to say, well, look, I'll get a, a free trade agreement by then. There's a few problems there. The first one is that's... Almost certainly not enough time to get a new free trade agreement. If you, get, you can get them pretty quickly if you're a small country and a larger country has just come and slapped its sort of bog standard FTA requirements on you. And you will take all of it because you're little and you're going to do what you're told. But that is not the case here. there's two major players and they will haggle and it won't be done by them. But even if it was done by then, you still have country of origin checks that are required on customs to work out tariffs where you need to make sure where has a good come from. That's really important because if you don't have it, a third country can try and surreptitiously get into your trading arrangement without having negotiated it in the first place. So there will be checks no matter what he says, no matter where they're positioned – On the island. He might put it further away from the border, he can do it in a squiggly line, but those checks are going to exist. The infrastructure is going to exist. And for that reason, what the British government said in 2017 in that joint report, where it said no checks on the island of Ireland, that is a broken promise right now as official government policy. The second part is in 2025 on regulatory checks. And that would go on until 2025. You'd have a joint agricultural and industrial arrangement on, on alignment uh, within Ireland, between North and South. That would end in 2025, unless there is a vote um, instalment. otherwise. But there is basically a DUP veto there. So I think that that's a democratic nicety for the fact that basically the DUP are being told another four years, just bear it out until 2025, and then you can pull the lot out and you'll all be done. So basically, he's given very, very, very few concessions at all.
1: Uh, and would this violate the Good Friday Agreement, has it?
0: Well, not by word, know. but certainly by spirit, because yeah. any kind of notion of North-South cooperation is just completely gone under the system. I mean, listen, what this does is it tears, apart, you know, tears Northern Ireland away from it as one body. He's given the DUP pretty much exactly what they want with a four-year delay. That's what he's done. So on that basis, yeah, I mean, you, know, you are not living up to the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement, but also the broader sense in that agreement of consent, that everything happens by the consent of both sides. And that is the moral fucking heart of this thing. The, the Republic of Ireland did not have any kind of vote on Brexit, didn't have any kind of voice on that process. This is happening to it. Northern Ireland voted against Brexit. This is happening to it. So all of these things are being applied without the consent of the communities on both sides. And that is... I. You know, without, when you get tangled up in the technicalities, order, that is the moral fucking heart, and it is absolutely abysmal.
2: And speaking of the consent thing... He envisages a role for Stormont, doesn't he? He envisages a role for the Northern Ireland Assembly to uh, be involved in thrashing out whatever happens after 2025. But the Northern Ireland Assembly hasn't sat for a long time. So, I mean, this is a body that doesn't effectively exist, and God knows whether it's going to be capable of existing after a few, a few years, more years of border tension. So what's, what's going on there? How can you get away with invoking a body that doesn't currently exist?
0: It's also a fake choice from what we've seen so far, because they have the power... To make sure that you pull further away from the EU, but it would not have the power to keep Ireland in the custom, to keep Northern Ireland in the customs union. So that democratic lock only ever goes one way, which mm. is away from the EU. Chris, what's your take on this? This talk of buffer zones.
1: Um, did they come out of the blue, or have has floated this idea before now, and and um, it just didn't get much traction?
3: Um, I, I personally haven't heard it before, but um, I don't think it really makes a difference. I mean, you you, you still got two separate goods territories. Uh, whether the Czechs are one kilometer away from the border, I don't think it makes a difference. It's still a hard border. Uh, that's the point, and I think in that in that sense there there is a, an absolute threat to the Good Friday Agreement, and that that's got to be foremost in everybody's minds.
1: And does the International Chamber of Commerce have an official position? On, on Brexit. The, on the Irish border? Uh,
3: we do on Brexit. Um, uh, well, first of all, the, the, the ICC, the International Chamber of Commerce, was built after World War I specifically to promote peace through trade. So what's interesting about the Irish situation is it's an absolute perfect example of success, that when you take borders away or you open borders up and you allow trade to flow, it creates a more peaceful environment. So it's extraordinary, really. That we're in, you know, the situation that we are. But I mean, our global position on Brexit is is to have a closest possible relationship between the UK and the EU, uh, preferably in the single market. Or if we're out, then the close next best thing. Uh, and a no deal, you know, hard Brexit, as it's called, is the worst possible scenario. And why is that important for the global economy? Simply because of the scale um, uh, of trade, uh, services and goods between. The UK and the EU, and that flow of foreign investment coming into the UK and then flowing into the EU. Once you start putting barriers on that on that border, that has all sorts of implications. And just to you know to illustrate that point, you know 40% of the UK's mid-sized companies, which is the engine room, what the Germans call the Mittelstand, uh, are all foreign-owned. Uh, they're foreign subsidiaries operating in the UK, and, and mostly because of the business case to be based in the UK, a good place to do business, and then you can operate in that bigger single market area. And, of course, if you put a, a cost uh, on that on that boundary, uh, i.e. a hard border, then that affects the business case. And, you know, some of these companies are not operating on big margins. This idea that big companies make big profits is not true at all. You know, even, even some of the big car auto manufacturers, they're on tiny margins. You know, it's massive capital investment. It's, you know, the difference between... the being based in the uk or based in spain could be one or two percent so you don't have to change the tariff environment very much to actually make the uk actually unviable it's much more viable to go elsewhere and that's part of the reason why the japanese have all kind of hit the well actually everybody's hit the pause button on investment but particularly when you hear it from someone like the japanese it's unprecedented they don't talk up in these kind of issues they're very diplomatic they always keep that uh, close, and they always keep it you know in private, so when you hear them speak up, then you should take note, uh, not least because a lot of those factories and investments are in some of the poorest areas of the u k you can't just replace those jobs and opportunities um in in other parts of the economy. it just doesn 't work like that, and the u k has a terrible track record of transitioning post industrialized towns into modern, you know, evolving towns. We're not good at
1: it. Well, no, we've had decades of failing to replace vanished industries.
2: Another thing to say about the buffer zone is it's going to be really messy because it's not a straight line, the island-Northern Ireland border. It kind of wriggles about. And at the moment, uh, lots of it is effectively invisible, of course, but it won't be for the case for any much longer. But if you're talking about a 10-mile buffer zone, you're actually bringing in a large number, uh, a a large proportion of the population um, of, of Northern Ireland into that. And the logistics of that and whether these people want to live in a buffer zone and what that means for them is something that is completely over- overlooked.
0: Even where these sort of things sort of do work, I mean, you know, you, you, you're basing so much of it on customs cooperation, on intelligence, things like that, with countries that work together, which is pretty much the exact opposite of the kind of attitude that the British have had towards the EU and certainly towards the Irish. You know, ministers have been spending half of the last three months briefing that, oh, we're going to try and turn these EU leaders against the Irish. The bloody... I think that is not the kind of cultural scenario in which this sort of stuff operates.
1: Um, well, it's been trailed as a as a first and final
0: offer, take it or leave it. Um, well, they, but, they, but then they started backing down. Right, So right. last night, you know, have a few drinks and you, quite tough. This morning they woke up and was like, well, well, maybe we could talk for the next 10 days.
1: So do you expect, I mean, it's very hard to know how seriously to take this deal, because there's still this thing, do they actually want a deal, or mm-hmm. are they just kind of going through the motions so as they can blame the EU? But would you imagine that Britain would, is, would be sort of willing to compromise...
0: Okay, so let's say what what is the best case scenario, the absolute best case right now in terms of their motivation (coughs) would be that they're going in on this thing on the expectation that from that benchmark, they might be able to get up to um, a time limit on the backstop. I think that's best case. I don't think it's true. But I think that's the best case. And they're thinking, oh, maybe, you know, maybe we could pass that back in the Commons. I don't think they would be offered it. I don't think that's what they want. And I don't think it would go through the Commons if they did get it. But nevertheless, that seems to me the best case scenario. Otherwise, you look at it and you think, my guess is it's not an either or that they the- do they want to deal or a no deal. My guess is they just think, you know, fuck it, give it a shot. You know, I think, I think basically what this looks like is just give it a shot. Don't think, don't really think it's going to succeed, but just give it a go and try to get ourselves into a narrative where we can say, look. We went for the deal, we're perfectly reasonable, we didn't get the deal, and then we were stopped from getting out because of the courts and, and parliament. So the creation of narrative takes precedence over the provision of viable proposals for negotiation, and that's test, you know, the, the testimony to that is, is the content of the document that we've seen.
1: Listen, Alan Parsons asks about the legislative aspect of this. Even if Johnson gets a deal and it passes parliament before 19th of October, can the UK leave on the 31st of October would it be able to sort of become UK law and be ratified no
0: I think he's out of time for that because you'd also need you need the European Parliament to to vote yeah. for it as well and you need to pass all sorts of bits of legislation to get you in place which he hasn't he's not able to do because the government refuses to pass any legislation at all uh, because because so scared of MPs amendments so no I think you, you would need to extend but the thing is the conversation about they're, they're banking on the idea that the conversation about extension would feel very different once you've agreed a deal, because you're just going to go, well, look, it's another month and, you know, you, you could get past that. But this whole easy.
1: thing about leaving on 31st is
0: kind of... The only way we mm-hmm. would leave on the 31st of October is if there's no deal.
1: Ross, um, Ian sort of mentioned on Twitter that nobody talks about frictionless trade anymore. That's one of those kind of like Brexit ideas that's been... um. That's been ab- abandoned. Um, last week, uh, I interviewed Ian McEwen about his Brexit satire, *The Cockroach*, um, and he, he said, "I haven't heard an economic argument about the advantages of Brexit for a long time. It has passed out of that realm. I think it's become <laughs> religious. It's gone all misty-eyed. We want it because we want it." Um,
0: that guy do, should write for a living.
1: <laughs> I mean, do you th- do you think it's it's right? He's right in terms of just like the the rhetoric has become purely it's a kind of it's just a a, a mobius loop of it's like we want it because we want it and they're not really putting particularly strong arguments.
2: Yeah, 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 completely. I mean, hes you can't tangibly identify any of the benefits of Brexit just like you, you know, can't tangibly identify any of the benefits of religion apart from what it does to people in terms of the good feelings you get from coming together and believing in something together. And to my mind therefore, Brexit is very similar to a religion. Um, you know, it's, it, and it also it functions as a route to power for people with a lot of ambition, which historically has also been a function uh, of, of religion. So I think he's Nailed it.
1: <laughs> so bringing us on to our next topic, um, I also asked McEwen how this crisis compares with the mid-70s. Uh, he said, my dread is actually not that it's going to be a catastrophe, it's just going to be very, very dreary. Which is probably true. But there is quite a lot of talk of catastrophe this week. Um, after Johnson's shameful comments display... Last week, the Brexit press ran headlines saying that MPs wouldn't need to fear violence if they gave in and supported Brexit. Do what we say and the threats of violence will stop is also Dominic Cummings' line and, historically speaking, Al Capone's. On the BBC, professional attention seeker Brendan O'Neill said there should be riots if Brexit is thwarted. There's some dicey language on the left too, with a banner in Manchester suggesting that we should level the playing field in retaliation for deaths caused by austerity, complete with two hanged effigies. Is the nation really that leery or is the government just trying to create the image of a tinderbox in the hope that it'll get Brexit over the line because we fear the consequences? If it doesn't, we ask some of our Twitter followers in Leave areas if they felt intimidated by angry Leave voters. Uh, Roz, what did they say?
2: Well, they said uh, that any abuse tended to take place online. So people wouldn't generally say it to your face. And so if you were able to avoid the online environment and, you know, log off Facebook and abandon Facebook, then often you were able to avoid it completely, particularly when it came to relatives. But then you know there were lots of people who didn't feel intimidated. That said, um, they felt they felt pretty uncomfortable when there were frosty silences with Levy relatives and and so on. Uh, but they didn't they didn't actually feel intimidated. On the other hand, there are some people who who clearly don't want to advertise the fact blatantly. Their remainers because they are a bit worried about the reactive reaction, whether people threaten violence or not. You know, one listener in Pendle said, "There's a reason I got a Romaniacs mug rather than a T-shirt." Um, so, yeah, I, I think there is there is a feeling that at the moment it's mostly online and it's mostly talk, but there's a kind of fear that that might start going offline as well and start start happening in real life.
1: Um, James cleverly claimed that there will be riots if Brexit is frustrated. Um, Ian, do you, do you think that there's real potential uh, for that or is it just messaging? Because suddenly the talk of it, everybody's sort of talking about it this week because basically the government has put it in people's heads. Hmm. Um, is that just another kind of uh, a form of sort of psychological pressure?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, look, let's distinguish between the things that we're concerned about, right? The first one is rights. Now, we have gone through two extensions of Article 50 already, right? And we did on one day, So, a bunch of sort of far-right guys. It's probably about, what, 80, 50 to 80 of them in Westminster kicking some stuff in. It's not great. We, unfortunately, have seen that throughout my, life, throughout my lifetime in some form or another. And we don't get into the business of passing policy on the bunch. what a bunch of fucking fascists decide to do on Westminster. That is not how we do things. So most of those statements, to me, are in fact a threat and an attempt to pressure people into a political position rather than an actual legitimate warning about something taking place. And when Brendan O'Neill said that on Sky News, I thought it was quite helpful because finally he was saying what the reality of it was, which is I wish for this to be the case rather than it is. So I'm not too concerned by riots, really. What I am concerned by is the radicalization of already vulnerable, alienated, predominantly violent men. And we have seen this again and again and again. We've already had one MP assassinated for this. Whenever we look at what sort of lone wolf far-right terrorists have written in their manifestos, it comes explicitly over and over again from this sort of rhetoric. I mean, the, the Christchurch killer called it Great Replacement Theory. That was the name of his manifesto, and that is an old... Fascist conspiracy theory, which you will see printed as if it was respectable on the pages of The Spectator in one form or another, warning about, you know, liberals bringing in Islam to undermine the domestic culture. We know that there is a link, which is the same thing with Breivik, there is a link between that kind of talk of saying about the people being undermined by a corrupt elite trying to destroy the nation from within and far-right violence. We know that that exists, and that, to me, is the concern, rather than the rather cynical, manipulative attempts to pretend that there'll be riots. Well, culturally, could Britain produce
1: a kind of mass movement like the Gilets Jaunes? Because, the, the, you know, the um, uh, the Brexit sort of experimented with the Yellow Vests for a bit, but didn't really catch on like a movement, French political culture... And the kind of tradition of mass mass protest there is is very very different. Mm-hmm. Do you see that kind of? But that has been enduring in France. Do you see beyond these sort of lone wolves any potential for? Because uh, these youngs are purely rioters. They're not necessarily running away from a riot. But you know what I mean. It's yeah, a little. Yeah. It's more broad based than that. The tactics are broader as well.
0: I don't. Although. I mean, you know, I should premise it by saying over and over in history, we see these things take place as spasms with very little warning from sort of, you know, Dreyfus affair, you know, over 100 years ago to the, the to exactly what we saw in France. And usually it comes from very small policy changes that take on a much more symbolic role and that usually, usually, even when the policy has changed, you're even seeing something on the other side in Hong Kong now, is that when you change the policy, the movement continues and the movement continues to push. So you can never really... It's hard to make deep predictions about this. What we can say is, is there evidence of that kind of thing about to take off from the streets of Britain? And the answer to that question is no.
1: But the history of riot is so weird because, of course, you don't see them coming. 2011. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, it wasn't a particularly... T- you know it wasn't a particularly rough year i mean there were many kind of you know problems in the economy It's still kind of the you know early days of austerity aftermath of the financial Mm -hmm. crisis but it wasn't i don't remember anybody saying watch out it could just take one spark Mm. but then it just sort of happened and there have been perhaps circumstances since where you thought something might have like that might have happened again and it hasn't Mm. so the whole idea of going there will be there should be or whatever just seems to not speak to sort of what You can talk a lot about mass protest, but that's very different to a riot, which almost by its nature is a Um, a spontaneous thing, and then sometimes it goes sort of viral.
2: Yeah, and often it's quite a joyful thing. Um, there was some research done at the LSC recently on the 2011 riots um, with some of the Guardian journalists who were covering them. And one of the observations the uh, main journalist involved made was that it was the 2011 riots were really joyful. People were really enjoying themselves. They were going in, you know, they were looting stuff, which is obviously often a big part of writing, and they were really enjoying themselves. And I think if we do see riots, I think it will be after no deal... But I don't think it will be in protest by Remainers at No Deal. It will be a general spasm, as Ian put it, of fear tension just you know opportunism all rolled together and people taking advantage of that and a general feeling of hysteria as things run out and you know things become unavailable and things change and that kind of and people who might always have had a tendency to riot um taking advantage of that and that's why it's a bit misleading to as some of uh, Remainers have, have uh, done this week to point at people at Tory conference napping and say, oh yeah, like they're going to riot. Well, no, they're not going to riot. Those aren't the people who riot. They never are. It's the young, younger people who riot. And um, as I say, the, the even the cause may not be entirely clear because it usually isn't with riots. It is often something very, very different and it's opportunism and it's a general atmosphere of hysteria. But the government
1: rhetoric... Makes me kind of think twice about sometimes when people do talk about say that one of the dangers of No Deal might be, you know, riots of food, or whatever. Because you're just like, well, isn't if you if you if you if they're using that spectre as a threat to get what they want, mm-hmm. you That's can't then yeah. use it as a threat to sort of get what you want. Hmm. And I do think, like you said, there's something very. I mean, the reason why I mean, the field of riot studies is so complicated is because. It's there's not this sort of simple cause and effect at all. And they like said they come from the tiniest of things.
3: Yeah, I think we need to dial the whole emotion down. I mean, I think it's extraordinarily unhelpful to be talking about riots um, or any of this kind of explosive language that's been used. It, it, it's dangerous. But, you know, we're, we're completely missing the point. What we should be talking about is jobs, livelihoods and prosperity. Um, you know, getting under the skin of actually what caused the referendum result in the first place, which was genuine, I have to say. I think we have to recognize that, that the disparity in the UK, uh, the lack of um, opportunity is extraordinary. That's what we need to be focusing on, not talking about riots and, you know, egging up the language. Uh, you know, you you're un- you unlock a monster, uh, which we've kind of already done on immigration, and it's very difficult to put it back in the box when it once you open it up. Uh, I mean in my lifetime there have been three big riots, the poll tax, the students, uh, and then, you know, the um the shooting and the and sort of what well, sort of started as the London riots more recently, which were kind of trigger events or policy events. I agree with you, but we shouldn't, you know, what what's that got to do with Brexit? You know, Brexit if if it's about anything, it's about you know the future of the UK, but it, what it should be about is what's what's right in terms of creating livelihoods for people across the UK. That's what we should be talking about, and we're not talking about that at all. We're just kind of getting into this very emotive argument of in out, and then losing track of actually what's important. What's going to create jobs in the Midlands? You know,
0: what's going to create opportunities? I mean, that's all true. The trouble is that so much of the so much of the narrative, the conversation, is based on what government and ministers say, and at the moment we don't. You know, we had a speech today where Boris Johnson went over every policy area he could imagine, but there was no content to any of it. Whereas most of the communication that's coming from very, very senior people in, in government is incredibly aggressive and incredibly vivid as well. Like a lot of the time when people put out statements going, talking about lyn- lynchings and stuff, and you just think like, don't use these words. these are, This is not a helpful way for you to be behaving. And so you're always caught in this thing of like, if you engage... You, you sort of cement that you cement that conversation but if you don't you just allow it to just flow out without any restraint
3: but you can't you can't this isn't a UK thing you know this is right wing populism it's the same in Brazil it's the same in the US it's the same in many other parts of the world too you know this is classic pop, populism in action mm. um, you know our message to business right now is it's the time to speak up because it's not coming from the political arena but I think responding to the political arena isn't helping us at all what we've got to do is show some leadership Uh, And that's what I mean about toning it down and getting into the proper issues and talking through what are the solutions. We know what the issues are. Let's talk about what are the solutions that are actually going to fix those problems. I don't think we should be giving it airtime. I think that would be our our view uh, because all that does is just escalate it even further. Mm -hmm. There's a point about young people as well, right, which is an interesting one in the context of Brexit because I think it's been very noticeable how, when I say young people, I mean sort of young adults really, how unengaged they've been but in a way there's no surprise about that because many of the impacts will fall you know way down the road um and so i think for me what's more interesting is not riots it's about what what you know what will the, the backlash to that be you know when they're 10 years down the road of already having having 10 years of auster- austerity and then having another 10 years or 20 years of disruption to their own careers and opportunities and then what what will be the outcome of that you know we have to be mindful that to give them an opportunity to come come back um or, or engage at a later date if they're not engaged right now we have to you know be thinking but this is not this is not we're not talking about roundabouts here we're not talking about things that uh, you know have a five-year cycle we're talking about policies that have a 30-year cycle and, and that that's the kind of thing we've got to be talking about you know to kind of measure the measure the dialogue
1: our new companion podcast on the house where MPs sam jima and philip lee and friends discuss politics over a pint at the end of the week is roaring up the podcast charts if you're looking for an honest insider take on parliament's infinity war then you should check it out there's a new episode every friday subscribe to on the house on your favorite podcast app and get it every week from the current episode, a barnstorming back to Parliament special, here's Cardiff South and Penneth MP Stephen Doughty on how he discovered the Pro Road plot and ruined Moggs' week.
4: I managed to find out. That prorogation was going to happen in the middle of the night. The, yeah, the, the, I mean it was it was quite extraordinary. I got back very late to Cardiff, and I got a tip off from a couple of journalists who texted me saying, "We've heard this very weird rumor going around about um, prorogation and possibly ministers going up to uh, Scotland to see the Queen." And I said, "I said, surely not true." only way to find out about this, is I'm going to call Buckingham Palace. You got through the switchboard? Yeah, so I got through the switchboard. I'm Stephen Doughty, yeah, MP Member of Parliament. For... yeah, and and I said I've been discussing with some privy councillors um, who are very interested to know whether or not there is a Meeting of the Privy Council tomorrow, um, because this is a very significant constitutional issue. And es- essentially, I got a you know a, d- a denial from a press officer that uh, this was happening, or at least a non-denial. You, know, you know, I don't really know what's going on. Story. I don't want to blame the individual officer, but I was able to ascertain that the Queen's private secretary had gone to Balmoral, which of course made me slightly suspicious um, because they don't go up there all the time. And um, they go there when the business is to be transacted. Anyway, over the course of the next few hours, I was able to establish that in fact three Privy Councillors, Jacob Rees being one of them were on their way to Scotland and we were able then to alert uh, the media so that we could get cameras to the airports and to Balmoral and then of course by the early morning we had uncovered the full thing and then that would then broke in 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 the media
1: He's a long time favourite of the show and a beloved national treasure but how much do you know about Dominic Cummings? (laughs) Um We talk about him a lot, possibly too much. He's especially crucial this week, so we thought we should dedicate some time uh, to the PM's very own Meekon, not least as Harry Lambert has written a fascinating profile in The New Statesman this week. So, Roz, it's a good, meaty, long read uh, full of of interesting details. What did you make of the profile? What did you learn that you didn't know before?
2: Well, I was trying to find out what it was that... Not so much what he believes in, because it's clear what he believes in. It's just shaking everything up and destroying in order to create. But what does he want to change, mm-hmm. actually, about British society, about the lives of... And I, this sounds boringly earnest, doesn't it? And I get a lot of flack sometimes of being <laughs> boringly earnest. But what does he actually want to change? It reminded me a lot of the policy of... Um, which, of course, is, was one of Gove's uh, key education policies, if not his key education policy... Of academy uh, academy schools now basically that's all about taking schools out of local authority control and putting them into uh, giving them over control of academies and supposedly giving them more control over their future but does it actually improve the schools? The evidence is in now and the answer is no, not necessarily at all. It doesn't... There's no systematic evidence that shows that it improves them. So it's all about just going in there and shaking things up for the sake of shaking things up and disturbing and making making things, uh, just changing structures. Now, OK, great, you've changed the structures. But the trouble is then you have to have new structures to run your new systems. And you end up with the same old bureaucracies and the same old problems. And I, as a philosophy, um, I find this, this uh, tedious, frankly, because it's just <laughs> all about throwing the Lego all up in the air and then leaving it for someone else to pick up. Well,
1: I know, I know, some listeners may think that when I compared him to Al Capone earlier, I was being flippant. Uh, but he did when uh, helping in Duncan Smith to fire David Davis. He gave him the advice, find the toughest guy in the room, <laughs> David Davis, um, <laughs> embrace him like a brother and then <laughs> slam, <laughs> slam his head against the wall, which is literally a quote from Al Capone. Mm-hmm. Um, did so that there were lots of things that made him seem less than likeable. Did anything in the piece make you warm to him? Was there any any of his sort of ambitions where you just thought I, you had some sympathy?
2: No, not really. I particularly... <laughs> <laughs> sorry. But I, I tried. I honestly tried. But for me, it was almost summed up by um, something he said, which was, was quoted in the piece, where he says that the ordinary voter is incapable of abstract thought. And that is an incredibly arrogant... And also an incredibly cynical thing to say about voters. It's, it's, it's a council of despair um, to suggest that people can't actually see beyond what what they're immediately confronted with. The, I, I, I found that incredibly sad and depressing. Um, you know, so I think
1: what it reminded me of. And then I realised that it was one of those um, Kanye West interviews from around the time of Yeezus when he claimed to be Steve Jobs, (laughs) Picasso and Walt Disney rolled into one. (laughs) You know, only it's just like Bismarck instead of Disney. Um, Is there something kind of... uh, Reading this profile, was there something sort of absurd about
0: him? I didn't think so. I thought he... It it was a really good piece. It was really interesting. Mm. Um, I thought he, he pretty much fitted a mould that I see predominantly with men over and over, which is this sort of simmering rage and frustration at the way things are. But like Ros said, like, no real clear idea of what it is that you're so angry about in the first place. I kept on exactly the same. I kept on going, well, what the fuck is he so angry about? And then it was like, well, he doesn't really like the way the civil service functions. And you think, just like, really, <laughs> is that it? Because, I mean, I've, yeah. I've had plenty of complaints about the way the civil service functions. I've got shitloads. I can reel them off. But, like... I, I just feel like I can get through that without losing my shit and, you know, actually having a conversation about it. So it seems to strike me those those sort of people where you look at them and think, OK, well, when I want to think about you psychologically rather than politically because I don't see that there's enough political content there to really engage in. And I do see that personality type quite a lot and they usually concern me pre- predominantly because... Look, conflict only gets you so far, right? I mean, a certain degree of conflict is useful. You've got an adversarial system, we have it in law, we have it in politics, we have it in debates, we have it in science. That's good, right? I appreciate the way that that works and why that's important for human development. But also, you need a capacity to think, well, actually, I want to work with others to achieve certain things. The adversarial guy will only take you so far if he's obsessed with conflict. I'm using the word he advisedly because it is almost always guys that do this. And he seems to me to be a classic example of that problem. So now I came away from it just thinking, like, I just, you know, I, I would much rather you you did fuck off, frankly.
1: I know it's ironic, considering we're devoting a segment to a long read about Dominic Cummings. But, Roz, do you think that um, there is a danger of becoming too sort of fascinated with this with this sort of figure? People love the idea of the um, the sort of the, the, the powerful kind of Rasputin figure. Um He's been, you know, played by Bendit Cumbach on telly. Um, there's always kind of gossip about him. He's always coming out and just saying, like, you know, provocative shit. Um, is, is Are we just perhaps a little too enthralled by him in a kind of um, the game of political personalities way? Like, you know, how, how much energy do we need to devote to working out what makes him tick?
2: Well, I think we do. Um, I mean, obviously, he's loving it. Um, which is a disincentive to uh, an overly <laughs> psychoanalysing him because uh, he he 's just loving it so much, but ultimately he 's an un- totally unelected individual who has been placed in a position of incredible power because Johnson, as you know lots of people predicted, is not. Um, at all interested in micromanaging stuff, quite the opposite. He just wants to delegate as much as he can to other people and then take the credit. Uh, and in this case I think he's delegated far more than even he expected to to Cummings and he's almost outsourced large sections of his brain to Cummings. But the interesting thing is we we're here we have not just him in the uh, Conservative Party or I don't even know if he's a member of the Conservative Party. Didn't that profile say he uh, hadn't actually been bothered to join yet? Mm. But anyway. Or apparently vote for them. Or even vote for them. But again, you know. Disruption, but we have him, and on the other side we have Seamus Mill with Corbyn, who performs a very similar function, but has been much less analysed, of course, because he's leader of the opposition, not prime minister yet. So we have these two people, completely unelected, exerting a huge amount of power at the top of British politics, and so yeah, I do think we need to think about. What he believes in, if anything, and what, how he operates. So we're
1: going to stay with our special guest, Chris Southworth, Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce. This is very much Ian's ballpark, so uh, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to let I'm going to let you lead it's like this one. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so what's going to happen to us then if if Brexit takes place and Britain? goes to the WTO, we have to sort out, you know, our tariff rate schedules, there's all sorts of things we have to sort out that previously have been done via the mm. EU, given that this is the circumstance in which it's taking place. How's that going to shape out for us?
3: Well, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting for me. I mean, I, I've obviously watched this. I mean, three and a half years ago, I didn't know much about the WTO. I, I went looking around, asking, spending time down there myself, and I'm amazed at just the lack of knowledge of the WTO, the language and, and, and level of debate is appalling. Some of it's just, frankly, completely wrong. You know, when you come out on WTO rules, you know, you, you, you are one country in 150 countries. You know, when you're operating in the EU, you're operating in a, in a sort of team, really. Uh, and so you, you already have sort of common rules. Uh, in the WTO, you have to negotiate with everybody to get the rules. So it's an infinitely more complicated. It goes much slower pace for all those very reasons. And so in a Brexit environment, you know, if the UK come out of the EU, one, you're a smaller player, when everybody else in the world is grouping up. Uh, so you're up against countries with less leverage because you, you, it's a numbers game. We've got less people, smaller market uh, than Europe in that case. You know, your leverage points around the table are, 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 are less. And so you just, you just have to be realistic and you're no longer in the Premier League. The Premier League is the US, China and EU. Those are the big players. Mm. Uh, they dictate and shape much of global trade and how global trade operates. You come down into, into sort of a, a mid-tier alongside other countries like the Canadians or Brazilians, uh, Japanese. You know, these countries are incredibly um, good at diplomacy. Now, the UK has the assets to do that. We're a very good diplomatic country, but not if we're behaving the way we are. But we have to behave differently, and we can't try and pretend that we're in the Premier League. We're not. We ha- what we have to get better at is building the bridges between the countries because it's in our interest to do that to get the deals. You've got to really work those those relationships in order to then get alliances, build build sort of commonality around ideas. And then, of course, you start to, to oil the wheels and get treasures. But it all means give and take, right? This idea that you can go out and say the UK is doing X, Y, Z, doesn't work like that. A trade deal is a, is a deal between two parties. There is no deal unless both parties agree. And it's pretty nuts and bolts stuff. you know. So you've got to sit down and, you know, and everyone has their own priorities. And so if you're going to talk to the New Zealanders, they want more lamb. Uh, more of the land market if you talk to the indians they want more labor coming in uh, into the services market here and so you know everyone has to give and take Uh, and so that and that will be tough for the uk on its own um you know when it's building trade policy capability and negotiation capability which we haven't had for 40 years and so you know it's it's going to take a long time and when you're up against the chinese or the us you know these are highly sophisticated you know huge teams of veteran negotiators. You can't just waltz around and try and pretend that you, you know you are going to get this an easy ride. You're not going to get an easy ride. There's no such thing as friends in a trade deal. Um, you know, We may share ideas, but at the end of the day it's hard nuts and bolts negotiation around hard issues that you won't necessarily like. And of course that's where it becomes important in the Brexit context that we don't just carry on doing trade deals as we've always done. We've got to take a much more inclusive approach. We've got to engage more with the unions, the civil society, the NGOs, so that when we get to the point of a negotiated deal, we're all on board. Uh, And you can see that with the US deal. We're carrying on with talking about a US-UK deal as if nothing's happened. And I can tell you now that the unions and the NGOs are all ready to go to war on chlorinated chicken in the NHS, and they will kill the deal like they killed the, the transatlantic deal in a week. You know, they killed that deal in three weeks. Right across Europe, it was over after five years of negotiation and simply because they had not been brought on board. And, you know, there are, you know, wide differences of opinion in our consumer base and our sort of public opinion about really important issues. And so we have to do trade differently. Trade isn't a separate activity anymore. It touches every area of public life. You know, it's really important that we have a different sort of governance. Uh, a more inclusive sort of governance so that when you do get to the hard yards which always comes at the end of the process like we are with Europe right now you know it, it's, it's not, it's not a, a quick easy process it's going to be pretty tough
1: During the um, 2016 referendum campaign virtually every business person except uh, Tim Martin and, and Dyson um, seemed to be pro-Remain why do you think that didn't have more of an impact? Was it that business didn't speak out loudly enough or do you feel that they did, but then people just saw them as another wing of the uh, the establishment to ignore?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it was it was really it was a, it was quite a painful experience actually, because you know we have enormous amount of expertise around trade in in the international chamber of commerce, but there was no button to push to communicate with anyone. We would just become, I think, incredibly complacent talking to ourselves in the Financial Times and all nodding our heads around what was good about trade and and forgetting actually we we hadn't brought the rest of the population with us. So we just hadn't told the story, the good, the good news story of the benefits of trade, which has been enormous. You know, we've cut, you know, global poverty almost in half. We've quadrupled the global economy. There's an awful lot of people have prospered. But we have to recognise a lot of people have not felt those benefits. And, of course, in the UK, particularly in the Midlands and North and so on. So we have to change the way that we're doing it. But we, we'd isolated ourselves. And I think, you know, the business community now, you hear us all talking about inclusive inclusive trade, making trade work for everyone, because we recognise we got it wrong. You know, that's in a way why I'm on a, on a radio show like this and I'm not sitting on just the BBC. You know, we've got to talk down different channels. We've got to engage with people. Some people will disagree and so on. But business has got an absolutely critical role in, in the whole process. But, you know, we've, we are the establishment. We have to accept that, that, you know, we're seen as the establishment. And we have to try and break those barriers down, rebuild trust. We've lost the trust. And so when you're talking about trade, you know, people just dismiss it. It's incredible, actually. You know, you're putting facts on the table and people are just saying, nope, don't believe it. You know, even though it's, it's correct and it's right. It's, it, it, you know, but it is what it is and we just have to keep on. But, we, you know, like I said earlier, you know, the message from us is we must speak up. This is not the time to be passive, either in the UK or anywhere else in the world. Businesses must speak up. Do you it's think, really important.
1: Do you think it'd be very different in the event of a, another referendum? Then, do you think that we'll have learned lessons and learned ways to, to express that? Because there is a much more positive and almost a sort of more humble message, as as well that you're that you're putting across there. A kind of.
3: Well, I think we've we've got to do a better change. job of remaking the case for trade. Why do we trade? Let's go back to first principles. What is trade? Because clearly we've forgotten, in a way. Ironically, because of Europe, I think it's become so easy in many ways that we're not really, we're just doing it and not really thinking about it. Uh, And I think we have to go back to first principles, re-explain, you know, why we trade, what difference that makes, whether it's creating peace, sharing prosperity or whatever. Uh, We must work with the government to get the policies right so the benefits of trade are distributed better. There's clearly been a huge gap there, uh, particularly in the UK, very acute. Um, and, 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 and we must communicate. You know, we represent 45 million companies and a billion employees. That's a lot of people, you know, in the world um, to, to communicate with. So that we have a role to play. And traditionally, businesses have always had a role to play in society. Uh, but we've sort of just cocooned ourselves a bit. And I think that's, that's not to our own advantage. Um, you know, we've got to try a bit, bit harder to get out. Uh, and engage more with the unions and NGOs who have traditionally been been very antagonistic. You know, we're we're, we're talking uh, because I think we all recognise we can't carry on as we have been in the past.
1: Um, and finally, that the whole thing about WTO when No Deal was tried to be reframed as a WTO Brexit, the fund version of No Deal. Um, and who is current? Who is on if an equivalent? Who is an, an equivalent arrangement? Who is purely operating on WTO? rules no one in the world no one just just yeah,
3: clarify I mean, uh, you'd, you'd have to uh, go to someone like north korea or someone who's not on a um, wto i mean i mean it's it, i mean it's a, it could be misleading that when i say no one i mean what because somebody did pick me up that on on, on twitter i mean uh, what i mean by that is that you know lots of we all trade on on wto rules but what countries all countries do really is uh enhance that with your bilateral Neighbors, Your biggest trade relationship is always with your neighbors. It's not with the other side of the world. It's your neighbors. And so, you know, every country, I can't even think of a country that doesn't have a, a trade relationship with it. It's Either it's neighbors or, or often it's region. And that, that's what I mean. That You know, just trading without anything, mm. there aren't anyone. There's certainly no one in anything like the scale or size of economy like the UK would be completely unheard of. Having said all of that, you know, as the government is doing now, when they say they have trade deals, really they're continuity deals. You know, nobody wants Mm. disruption for the sake of disruption. You know, everybody has a a positive, you know, affliction to the UK in in the main. And, and of course, you know, there is, I think, a desire to say, OK, let's have a continuity uh, arrangement. But don't be fooled that that's a trade deal. There will be at some stage at the end of that road a hard negotiation and a trade deal. But I don't think anybody wants disruption, so there probably will be quite a quick round of getting continuity arrangements into play so that there isn't you know disruption for the sake of it.
1: Um, It's the end of the show, which means the Brexit time capsule, the mysterious pharaoh's hoard of everything we'll need or miss if we ever leave the EU. Uh, Chris Southworth, as our special guest, uh, what's going in there with freedom of movement, the quick passport queue, and a rogues gallery of politicians?
3: Um... I think a cohesive society has got to be the top of the list. I mean, I I, I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 it pains me. I have two children, uh, two mixed children of different cultures, and uh, you know we're not living in the same country as we were, um, and it, and and that doesn't feel very good. And it also doesn't feel like we've got solutions to that problem either. This is going to go on for some time, mm. um, and and that's that doesn't come across well. It doesn't feel you know good. Uh, And it damages our credibility on the international stage. So I think that's definitely one. And the other one would would almost absolutely be around trade agreements. I think, you know, people will feel the pain because as we come out of that Premier League, if we do come out of the Premier League, we are definitely going to be trading on less preferential terms. And that's going to be painful. Um, You know, it's not a question of whether the UK will take a hit. It's just how big the hit will be and how long will it take to bounce back. You know, we're very resilient. We'll mm-hmm. always come back. We're very innovative in that sense. But, you know, it, it's, it's not going to come without pain. And, and you can see that within the, the uh, industrial environment now. Everybody's hit the pause button on investment. Um, depending on what happens on those borders, you know, it, it's corrosive. You know, companies will move operations. Companies will adapt either way. Once they know the answer, they'll mm-hmm. adapt. And don't be surprised if, you know, operations suddenly start happening on the continent, that we become a satellite, not not the sort of center. Um, you know, the talent then starts to erode over to wherever the center is, you know, and, th- and that happens gradually over time. And then, you know, supply chains and value chains and opportunities that all come with it all start to change. And And we don't know where that's going to land and I suspect it's not going to be where people think it's going to be. That's a and th- and that will be very sad. Yeah. And Because the people who get hit the hardest will be the very regions who have been shouting the loudest, which is the poorest, of course. So, and, and that's why I always say we've got to start to focus on the livelihoods. It's the poor communities we need to be really working on. And it's hard to see how any sort of Brexit... Um, option is going to be beneficial in that sense.
1: That's a big old bleak old time capsule we're (laughs) building here. Uh, This week's foreign language clip is an Estonian from listener Kaidi Calvi.
4: Uh,
1: That means after Brexit there will be a new ad on a red bus saying we created 350,000 new jobs in the NHS every week. Send us your foreign language clips. Just make a quick recording on your phone and email it to info at We'll use the best ones. That's your show. Thank you, Ros and Ian. And thank you. Thanks to our special guest, Chris Southwell. My pleasure. Remember, Romaniacs live in Manchester on Saturday 2nd of November. Tickets on sale now. Here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop, which you can get as a free download at ampleplay.co.uk as we thank our latest Patreon backers.
0: Hello and thanks from me to Alexander Zimmerman, Penwing aka Alex Lambert, Laura Vogel, Leo, Joseph Curtin, Jodie Sampson, Hayden, Nicole Rugman, Katie Held, Daniel Lister, Nick Cousins and Tess.
2: Hello and thanks from me to Rob Cameron, no, and that's it, that's her name. Doctor Johan Waktare, Philippa Sturt, Carl Zierold, Jesper Bogatoft Power, Patrick Roberts, Taraka Davis Barnard, Lee Wolfenden, Sheridan Smith, surely it's the Sherendon Smith, Carmen Katesh and Mike Corris. And
1: thanks for me to Richard Evans, Kim Gladstone, Adrian, Carl Cochlan, Lawrence Wheatman, Rob Tomlinson, Nicola Brook, Angus, Camille Gattin, Simon Roth, Thomas V. And Lucy Richardson. We'll see you all next week.
4: Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor and Ian Dunt. The producer is Andrew Harrison. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese, in 3D. Romaniacs (laughs) is a Podmasters production.
2: (laughs)